This is Sermonsmith, a podcast of conversations about the craft of sermon preparation, and my name is John Chandler. Hey, very excited to share this interview with you. Uh, today I am talking with John Mark Comer, who is the pastor at Bridgetown Church in Portland, and many of you probably already know that name. I've had a number of requests to interview John Mark. I actually wasn't familiar with John Mark until a few years ago, just because the requests started rolling in. Would you try to interview John Mark Comer? And so here we are, and I can tell you that I've had so many of those, and I allude to this in today's interview. I've I've become a fairly regular listener of John Mark's sermons myself because I feel like he speaks to me, and I learn about preaching just by listening to him. So it's great to kind of peel back the curtain and hear behind the scenes in this conversation. A few notes before we get into it. One of them is this interview is, uh, our partner is audible.com. You can go to audibletrial.com slash sermonsmith and get a free book, and then you can choose to continue on with a subscription from there or just take your free book and cancel. I'd suggest for a free book, you could get Garden City by John Mark, which is a uh, book of his that I read a few years ago. Great book that just talks about uh, the role of vocation and the role of work and the role of uh, rest in the life of any believer. Just really helpful for me personally, uh, something I've shared a number of times with my congregation in sermons. But the reason I love Audible books is the same reason I love pod- podcasts. It's a way to engage thoughtful ideas when I'm in the car, when I'm out for a walk, uh, sometimes even when I'm sitting at my desk working on things that allow me to pay attention to other words. And so I, I call Audible Sermon Prep on the Go because it's another way for me to uh, read books and think about things that often make their way into my sermons. AudibleTrial.com slash SermonSmith. It's a way to support the podcast. And then it's also a way for you to uh, engage maybe a new kind of sermon prep. And of course, there's always Patreon, which is a way to uh, serve as a patron of the arts, serve as a patron of the podcast. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SermonSmith, and you can pledge to give whatever amount you choose, $1, $5, whatever it might be per episode to help offset just some of my time costs and some of the, the uh, technical costs associated with the show. Also, just a note, I want to say thanks to T. Romine. I'm not sure what the T stands for, but as I've said many times, I'm really thankful anytime we have reviews on iTunes, because I know that's one of the ways that other people help find the podcast. Uh, iTunes, when shows have lots of reviews, that kind of raises the profile for a podcast. And so for all of you who have done that in the past, we're up to 56 ratings. I'd still love to see us, as I said a few months ago, get over the 60 mark. And of course, I'd love to see us get past that. But thanks, T. Romine, uh, for your recent review and, and helping us get there. Okay, so no further ado, let's move on to our conversation with John Mark Comer of Bridgetown. John Mark, let's get to it then. Why don't you tell us about Bridgetown Church? Tell us the story, the context, kind of people who are there. Yeah, Bridgetown Church, we're right in the urban core of Portland, Oregon, up in the Pacific Northwest. So just Follow I-5 if you're on the West Coast, north to the coffee and the rain and all the depressed people, and that's my home. And uh, we have kind of two churches, one on the inner east side of the city and one right downtown in the West End. We're about eight years old, planted kind of from scratch and went for it. And it's been a beautiful journey. Obviously, you know, Portland Outreach Magazine recently called Portland the post-Christian frontier. And there's something to that. I I think it's a good place to be because I think we're about 20 or so years 
ahead of the secularization curve for kind of most of America and about 20 or so years behind the secularization curve for most of Europe. So I think it's a key moment right now in the American church's story, just asking the question, you know, how do we do church and just even follow Jesus in such a way that we can survive the coming kind of moment and hopefully even thrive and not go the way of a Scandinavia or a France or some of these nations where the church is, you know, just been decimated. So we're just trying to work it out. I feel like our church is far more of a question than an answer. And uh, we're just trying to figure out how do you do church? How do you do apprenticeship to Jesus and community and a busy, urban, transient, hyper-individualistic context? How do you do the gospel in a radically different kind of worldview? How do you do sexuality, you know, when it's so at odds with the cultural torrent, all that kind of stuff? So um, it's beautiful. That's kind of what we're doing. Our whole church is really built around apprenticeship to Jesus or spiritual formation in kind of technical jargon. I'm far more of a teacher than an evangelist, and we have a a team of leaders, but um, that's kind of what I bring to bear, and that's a real passion for our church is kind of life in home communities, not just Sundays, church around a table as well as church around a stage, and around this idea of practice and trying to recapture the way of Jesus as a way of life. That's kind of our driving thing right now. Yeah, and I, I do want to dig into that a little bit more here in a minute, um, just because I always like to you know figure out how preaching fits in different people's churches. But before we jump on that, uh, what what kind of people are part of Bridgetown? I mean, you talked about Portland and the nature of Portland, and a lot of us have uh, assumptions, impressions of what Portland is like. You know, I think sitting in Austin as I am, I have uh, a little bit of an idea of what Portland is like just by nature of that, but. Uh, that being the case, what kind of people are part of Bridgetown? Do you find you have people who move to Portland with a Christian background, or do you find that you're even getting some of the post-Christian mindset and you're having to start from scratch with people? What's that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a mix like anything. Portland's the most overeducated city in America, so it's not a college town. It's a mecca for like educated 20-somethings who want to move here for the lifestyle. So unlike a New York or San Francisco or even an LA where people move there to make it or to kill it in their career for, you know, three to five years and then move back home when it's time to settle down and buy a house and all that kind of stuff. People move to Portland for Portland and then they just find a job when they get here. So um, it's really fascinating kind of cultural moment that for the city. So our church is just full of people that come from other churches all over America. So we have a lot of people that grew up in churches, um, most of them more on the conservative side as far as their upbringing, but not all, and then have moved to this, you know, kind of wild, wild west, post-Christian, hedonistic, you know, cornucopia kind of city. And in that transition, a lot of them are reacting against um, a more conservative or more Southern kind of expression of church and faith and are trying to process this kind of hyper-hedonistic, hyper-individualistic, very post-Christian, very progressive kind of city. So a lot of people in that process. Of course, you do have people coming to faith in Jesus. Um, That's not the main kind of strength or thing that Bridgetown Church offers, the kind of ecosystem of the kingdom in the city. But you have that. I mean, I was chatting. I was in Whole Foods a few days ago. I was in Whole Foods from Austin anyway. So what you export to the world. (laughs) And uh, the checker goes, you know, it's the classic, oh, you don't know me. 
but I know you. My name's, you know, <laughs> keep your name off the podcast, but this lovely <laughs> young lady. And she's like, yeah, six months ago, I wasn't remotely into or interested in church. And it turns out she grew up in this staunch atheist family up in Seattle, zero faith background at all. And very, you know, hostile kind of family of origin toward faith. And it was a really big deal when she became a follower of Jesus. It was like a coming out with her family. But Remain invited her on to Alpha, which is that Wednesday night thing we do, kind of a third space. The main way that we do evangelism is not through Sundays, but is through this kind of third space and neighborhood hospitality. And comes along and, you know, went through it once, came through back through it again, came to faith in Jesus. And now she was just on her third time through it as a kind of helper, you know. So you have people like that coming out of, you know, hardcore atheist kind of stuff, but that would definitely be the minority. Most people were right in the center of the city where where people tend to move if they move to Portland. And so a lot of people just land here, find us, we're within walking distance or a short ride away and kind of join the church. Um, and like most urban contexts, there's not a lot of people that grew up in the city. Most people are transplants here. So it's kind of a mix. But yeah, we have a lot of 20 and 30-somethings, a lot of young professionals, a lot of single people that have moved here post-college or grad school for the lifestyle and are kind of in that transition to life in this kind of a cultural environment. And was that, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your bio because I have it in front of me, uh, you know, uh, was that your story too? It, it says before you, you started Bridgetown, you were a pastor of a suburban megachurch. Was that in the Portland area or are you from somewhere else too? Yeah, I guess it was. I grew up in the Bay Area, but I moved up, or my dad moved up. I moved up with my family when I was 13. So I've been here quite a while out in the suburbs and then co-planted a megachurch with my dad and a great team of people. Had that experience for about 10 years of kind of church planning, megachurch, suburban world. But my heart was always for the city. And so like a lot of people my age, I rejected my suburban roots and uh, got rid of the car and got a bicycle, yeah. moved into the city and all the kind of classic trope that you hear so often for 30-somethings. And uh, I'm here now. We love it. We're in the city raising our family right here. And uh, and I've wanted to plant a church in the city as long as I can remember. Yeah. How has, uh, how has preaching in the city versus the suburbs, even in a place like Portland, been? has it been significantly different or is the Portland mindset in the suburbs too up there? No, the suburbs are, I mean, it's not a clean break. Um, but the suburbs are, you know, not nearly as crazy and progressive and hostile as the city. But the goofy thing about the digital age is all that is changing because what used to be locked in the urban core of a Portland or a San Francisco or an LA now is in everybody's front right pocket, you know, via their phone. And sure. so it's just such a fascinating moment, you know. So, yes, um, it would be, you know, not nearly as crazy and progressive out in the suburbs as in the city. And you'd have a way higher percentage of Christians and of conservative Christians in that environment than you do in the city. Way, way higher. Church attendance is higher, all of that. But still, the secular kind of post-Christian progressive narrative, whatever you want to call it, is just kind of infecting everything. You know what I mean? Not yeah, yeah. just the urban cores of these classic progressive, you know, cities on the coasts. Yeah. So, uh, circling back now, because you started to allude just to, 
you know, what the emphasis and what spiritual formation looks like. So one of the things I always like to ask people is what is the role of preaching in the life of your church? That gives us some helpful context. So talk a little bit about that for Bridgetown. Like how does preaching fit in the, the framework of Bridgetown? Yeah, well, I, I guess there's two answers to that. One is really, you know, especially when you're in a post-Christian kind of context, so much of what preaching is doing is at a worldview level before we ever get to a Bible or theology level or much less a spiritual formation kind of discipleship to Jesus level. So much of it is about story, about worldview, about story. You know, we quote on a regular basis, Babette's Buster's line that human beings are narrative animals. And this idea that we all live from some kind of a narrative, some kind of a story to make coherent sense of a over-the-top, complex, and confusing world. And everybody does this. Followers of Jesus, atheists, conservative, progressive. You wake up in the morning, life is hopelessly complex at times, and we have to put together some kind of a coherent and ideally compelling narrative to make sense of what life is about. And then those stories, we then live into those stories, and those stories, whether they're truth or lies, they become true of us over time as we live them out. And so, obviously, the story that the secular kind of post-Christian world is telling is radically at odds with the story that Jesus is telling. So a lot of preaching for us is storytelling, not in the sense of like a cute story about my kids, but storytelling in the sense of worldview. What is life? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be sexual? What is the good life? And that's so, I think that's why Jesus comes telling stories that we call parables. It's because of getting at worldview. These are not cute little sermon illustrations. They were provocative. They got him killed. He'd tell these parables and people would walk away plotting how to murder him because these were he was messing with people's worldviews and he was messing with their vision of good and evil and right and wrong and what is the good life and what isn't. So for us, you know, our people, myself included, are receiving messaging hours and hours and hours and hours of every single day through the internet, through phone, through news sources, through entertainment, through just walking down the street and billboards and restaurants. We're just being, we receive all of this programming and it's shaping us, even if we don't want it to. And so the sermon is just this little 40 minute block in each week. And it's not yeah, enough by yeah. itself, but to contribute an alternative story, another kind of programming feels a little too, you know, weird of language, but another kind of alternative form of storytelling to get into people's worldviews. So there's that at the kind of meta level. Below that, you know, in our, um, so I come from a Bible church tradition. I grew up in Bible teaching churches. I went to Bible college, went to seminary. I'm a teacher. So I naturally gravitated toward Bible teaching, exegetical, line by line. Here's the Greek, here's the historical background, all of that. And I love that. And I still do it. But I had to learn the hard way that, you know, Bible teaching alone does not transform people into the image of Jesus. And um, it hit me, I had a kind of a really profound moment uh, a few years ago, I was teaching through actually Matthew 28 at this kind of small little gathering of leaders. And I was teaching that line or just reading that line, you know, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that I don't do that. I don't teach people to obey everything that God has commanded them or Jesus has commanded them. I teach them everything that Jesus has commanded them. And hmm. that's a subtle 
but significant yeah. and very different kind of teaching. It's the difference in business parlance between the what and the how. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Wow, it's one thing to exegete Philippians 4 and talk about anxiety and, you know, be anxious for nothing and then tell everybody, all right, be anxious for nothing this week. And it's a whole other thing to teach people how to become a non-anxious presence in their home and workplace and neighborhood. It's a very different teach. It's a difference kind of between teaching and training, you know, and it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Wow. I can teach the Bible. I can exegete. I can tell people what Jesus has commanded them, but that's not the same thing as teaching them how to obey what Jesus has commanded them. So that, I think that wrecked me in a good way and started me down this journey. I spent about three years reading, researching everything I could get my hands on around spiritual formation, psychology, Christian and secular, just asking the question, all right, how do people change? If I want to preach toward not just worldview, if, you know, obviously your worldview is the beginning point, but I want to teach past that to transformation. If just exegeting the Bible as much as I love that and continue to do it, if that's not enough to form people into the image of Jesus, how do people change? And um, obviously there's not like a black or white answer to that, but we came up with a kind of working theory of spiritual formation. The writings of Dallas Willard and others were mm. extremely influential in our church. And in our kind of current working um, theory of spiritual formation, there's about four key pieces, and we kind of draw it up on a whiteboard and diagram it out, but it's teaching and practice and community and the Holy Spirit. And so teaching kind of this, you know, Paul writes in Romans 12, do not be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed, is all that spiritual formation language, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the best kind of teaching doesn't just say, this is right and this is wrong, but it gets into your head with worldview, with a vision of the good life. It says, this is the good life, this isn't. And it starts to renew your mind, the way our minds are all fallen and corrupted by sin, just like our bodies are, just like our emotions are. And so I think good teaching is all about worldview and it's getting in there. But then good teaching isn't enough by itself. It has to lead, secondly, to practice or what we call the practices or most people call the spiritual disciplines, these habits where you orient your mind and body all through the day around abiding. And that has to lead to community. You can't just like go out and do it on your own. And that all has to be empowered forth by the Holy Spirit um, who's involved in all of it. So for us, you know, I think for a long time I worked under the kind of my theory of spiritual formation, if I even had one, was kind of information plus inspiration plus willpower equals change. And so it was kind of, here's information about the Bible or whatever. Let me inspire you with the story or my life or this or whatever. <laughs> now go just try really hard to not worry or to not lust or to be more generous or hospitable or whatever. And I just had to learn the hard way. That is not a winning formula. That only works for really small changes, like very small changes in your life. Once you're dealing with major changes at a character level, that formula simply does not work well. And so um, all that to say for preaching, we've kind of rebuilt our whole church around this paradigm of teaching, practice, community, Holy Spirit. And we have this whole model where we teach through practices and we do them in our home communities and um, all around the spirit. And so teaching for us is kind of this beginning, you know, let us lay out a vision and get you going. And then you take it from there out of Sunday into practice and into community. So, so coming out of that, which is, I mean, that's fantastic because I think one of the tensions we have sometimes today is 
the sermon is no longer relevant because people need more information, you know, or people swing the other way and say, no, the sermon is still central. And I love how you're kind of merging. You found a middle ground in that, it feels like, where this this teaching, this information is still critical because of that whole worldview component. Yeah. But you've attached so much to forming the worldviews more than just the mind. It's the it's the living, you know, it's the, it's the practices, it's the working it out. Yeah. And I think that's where I just, you know, with millennials in general and in a post-Christian city, you just have to back up the train. So I still teach the Bible, but whereas I used to be like, all right, chapter 13, we left off last week in verse six, let's pick up in verse seven and just start teaching it. Now, almost always I have to back up the train to culture, moment, what are we hearing? What are the lies that we're believing? Why does this matter? What's the heart behind this? You know, and then get into it. And then afterwards, I have to move to practical stuff. In a sermon for me, I'm trying to do three things. I'm trying to do cultural commentary, which is basically worldview stuff, Bible teaching and theology, and I'm trying to do spiritual formation. And while that isn't necessarily a sequential thing, normally it goes in that order, cultural commentary, Bible theology, and then last spiritual formation. And um, I think you see an interesting kind of pattern in the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, we would all agree is a pretty dang good sermon. Let's call it the best sermon ever. <laughs> and, you know, Jesus in, in the main body of the sermon, he has the 14 kind of teachings that I think all flow together. And I love um, Dr. Glenn Stassen out of Fuller Seminary. He has a my, one of my favorite books on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's an ethicist, so he has a nice kind of angle on it. And he writes about in that triadic structure that you see in all 14, but especially in that first seven that you've heard it said, I say to you. Um, he, his language for it is there is a traditional teaching. So in teaching one, it's, you know, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I say to you, and this is Jesus beating up on kind of how a Old Testament law was interpreted and getting to the heart behind it. Then there's secondly, what he calls a diagnosis of the vicious cycle of the human condition. So, you know, Jesus just starts to teach about how anger gets into our heart and it turns into contempt. And we look down our nose at the other person and we write off not just the behavior, but the person. And we're kind of have this posture of contempt toward other people that just eats away at relationships and wreaks havoc in community. And then third, um, he has what Stassing calls a transforming initiative, which is like a little small, practical, creative step to break the vicious cycle and live into the kingdom reality. So in that first teaching, it's, you know, if you're at the altar, it's a funny story. If you're at the altar in Jerusalem and there you realize that your neighbor back in Galilee, a day's walk away, has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar, leave the donkey at the altar or whatever, the lamb, and run all the way back home to Galilee and talk to your neighbor about it and then come and offer your gift, you know? And it's funny and it's comedic, but yet it's practical. It's something that anybody can do and almost everybody can relate to. So that has radically kind of changed my teaching where I'm trying to not just do the, you've heard it said, but I say to you, let me teach the Bible, beat up on bad readings of the Bible and give you one I think is better, but also talk about what is the, what Stassen calls the vicious cycle. What is the, where are we stuck in the human condition? What are the lies that we believe? And what are the patterns of behavior that don't lead to life, but instead lead to death? Diagnose that, call it out, expose it like Jesus does. And then I end, most of the time, it's so funny. I've stopped ending hardly any of my teachings with like a, 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 a 
thought provoking story or an emotional thing or a, even like an inspirational kind of pep thing. Not that I'm against that. And sometimes I do, but most of the time I end with this like not sexy, not arty, very practical, like here's a couple like really practical ideas of how, so I just gave a teaching on abiding and it was kind of arty and cool and quoting brother Lawrence and blah, 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 and mother Teresa. And then in the end, we just talked about fixed hour prayer. And here's a way to do fixed hour prayer. You know, you could do Psalm in the morning, Lord's prayer at noon and examine at night and a quick thing on the examine and what it is. And why don't you give it a try before you go to bed at night? Like so practical. And it wasn't like nobody's cheering at the end. Nobody's crying. It's like, oh, here's some really practical ways. Otherwise, I just think that most people here are teaching on abiding. They think it's great. And by Thursday, they're just right back in the busyness of their ordinary life. And so I am more and more trying to end a sermon with like really small, practical, concrete, creative next steps to take these big ideas and slowly begin to work them into your day-to-day life. Yeah, yeah. It's, I'm, I'm chuckling uh, on my end here because I had that experience today where I saw somebody who doesn't attend our church but listens to our podcast, and he said to me, I ended a sermon probably a month ago just teaching on the Jesus prayer, you know, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Yes. And he came up to me, and that's exactly what he said was, that prayer you taught at the end of that sermon was so helpful. I've been doing it ever since. And I'm, I said a lot of stuff in that sermon, <laughs> you know, but, and I took credit. I said, I invented that prayer just for that. No, I told him, you know, it started 1,500 years ago. But so, all right, that that's that's all magnificent. I'm curious for, I'm just, you know, I have a general order of questions I ask and I'm just, we're, we're off the, you know, we're off the rails here and that's fine. We'll, we'll circle back to some of them, but I'm curious about the cultural commentary piece. And and like I told you, you know, you're, you're one of the regular uh, sermons in my own podcast feed that, you know, I try to keep up with. I can't keep up with all my podcasts, but I try to keep up with you and, you talked about how you start out with that cultural commentary piece. And I'd love to hear a little bit of the, and, and I've heard you do that. And that's all, all that to say. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you approach that because, you know, sometimes we know that we're going to teach something that's in direct tension with what we're commenting on culturally. Sometimes we might start out with something that's cultural commentary that we're actually going to teach something that, that might even be sympathetic to something that's happening in our culture. Um, what, what, what kind of lens or what kind of framework do you try to approach that cultural commentary piece so that it just doesn't seem like it's a almost a fundamentalism talk about here's everything that's going wrong with what's around us, you know, and here's the Bible answer. You know what I mean? I, I feel like you do that when I've listened pretty graciously in a way that's pretty compelling. Is there a framework you try to put on that to help you with that? Um, yeah, I don't know that I have anything great to say there. I- I'm new to the cultural commentary piece in the same way that, you know, again, if, if I'm trying to do three things, cultural commentary, biblical theology, and spiritual formation. Those are my sure. three Venn diagram of what I'm trying to do in a sermon. I started out just doing biblical theology. That was where I began. And then learn the hard way, okay, teaching the Bible does not equate to transformation into the image of Jesus. So that's when the spiritual formation piece came in. The cultural commentary is the newest piece in my teaching, and it's a combination of one, just being in a post-Christian city and realizing that I can't just teach the Bible and give practices to move forward to somebody, which is a ton of people in our church, 
who in no way, shape, or form take the Bible to be, you know, authoritative or whatever language you want to wrap around that. And who, you know what I mean? And who yeah. have massive questions and problems and issues with the Bible as a whole. I have, I have to back up or who's, you know, for example, who's uh, for a lot of people in our city, and this definitely creeps into our church, their new moral barometer for whether something is good or evil is so different than that in the writings of the scripture. So it would be, a lot of it would be around happiness. If something makes me happy, therefore it is morally good. If something makes me sad, my marriage, my whatever Christian teaching around sexuality, it is therefore morally bad. God would never want me to be unhappy and happiness is defined as feeling good in the moment, right? That's a radically different worldview. And so you can't just come into somebody like that and say, well, Timothy chapter three, verse whatever, and the Greek word for this is that. Like you have to back up, you know? So part of it was just that doing preaching in a post-Christian city. And then the other, um, frankly, was just uh, my friendship with this guy, Mark Sayers. I don't know if you've had Mark on the show or not. I have, I have, yeah. Wonderful. So Mark is a dear friend of mine. And uh, any cultural commentary I do, like 80% of it is either from him or from articles that he sends me. And I have the privilege of being friends with an an evil genius, as I like to call him. (laughs) But just hearing him... And that's what he is. He is a cultural, you know, commentator um, by profession even. And just hearing him read culture has been beyond helpful. You know, the backstory to Mark is he was there kind of early in the missional movement and uh, the church that he pastors now, he took over for Alan Hirsch, who was a big kind of mm-hmm. leader in the missional movement. And I came into that movement a little bit later, but kind of, you know, was in that fad for a while. And, you know, what Mark started to notice is the same thing that I later noticed, but he saw it earlier because he started earlier, is that a lot of people started out kind of deconstructing the church and put all of this effort into energy into deconstructing the kind of Sunday-centric, attractional kind of particular mega and very suburban kind of way of doing church. Um, which needed to be done. I think so a lot of it does need to be done. But then they ended up kind of deconstructing their New Testament and their faith and orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And a lot of them ended up just post-church or even post-Christian. And so there's a lot of churches that went down that journey and don't even exist anymore. And many of the people, including many of the leaders, aren't even followers of Jesus anymore. And so Mark saw this trend that it's like the deep, you know, kind of tragic underbelly of the last 10 or 15 years of the church in the West. And he had this epiphany moment where he said, man, what if I, um, what if I spent all of my effort and energy, not deconstructing the church, but instead deconstructing culture and just put all of that same effort and energy, that deconstructionist angst kind of tear down the system millennial thing. But what if instead of aiming it at the church, I just tried to do a good, healthy church. And what if instead I tried to aim it at culture, at the secular kind of post-Christian moment that we're in? And um, he's, I just think he's done a masterful job. So frankly, it's really just his influence and the, the incredible <laughs> how helpful his work has been in my own apprenticeship to Jesus yeah. and in my own thinking, the way that he, you know, Mark, you've got him on, so, you know, he like, it's like a virtuoso just kind of unmasking the lies of our culture that masquerade as truth. And back to the worldview thing, I just think he does that masterfully. And so while I don't want to sound like a fundamentalist who's just screaming at the big bad world, and I'm sure I can come off that way accidentally at times, it's not my heart. I do very much want to unmask lies. You know, if you think about the enemy from the beginning, Jesus called him the father of lies. And our culture is full of lies. 
even the church, and they seep into the church. They seep into people's minds and imaginations, and these lies become the stories that people believe. And you know, if you live a lie long enough, the tragic thing is it starts to become true of you. So, what I think. Mark does so incredibly well is just expose the lies of our culture as what they are. And so I think that's all I'm trying to do is really do some cultural commentary, expose some lies, and just compare and contrast the story that culture is telling us with the story that Jesus is telling us. And then at some point, people decide which story makes the most sense of reality, you know, which story makes the most sense of the human condition, which story makes the most sense of your sexual experience or whatever it is. So let, let's get into some, to the degree that you like to get into nitty gritty, I can get really nitty gritty. So love it. Let, let's talk a little bit about your process for just week to week, what it looks like for you to do preparation, study, put a sermon together. Uh, walk us through what that process looks like for you. Yeah, um, it's not rocket science on my end, and I would love to hear best practices from you. But um, for me, one really helpful piece of advice from my teaching mentor was this guy, Mike Erie. I don't know if you've had him on the show or not. Oh, yeah. No, um, I haven't. Yeah, he's. I've just, tried. We disconnected a couple times. Oh, really? Yeah, phenomenal Bible teacher. So he mentored me for a number of years. And, you know, one great advice, I think, that piece of advice that he gave me was don't just study for upcoming sermons or sermon series, but study for study's sake too. And um, always try to be reading, studying, thinking, exploring, not just for an upcoming sermon. Do both, not just one. So um, I'm trying to build just habits of study into my regular life. So I read for an hour to an hour and a half every single morning before I turn on my phone and go about my day. So my first hour and a half of work, and again, that's a privilege I have as a full-time, you know, uh, paid elder at a church and a church that's large enough to have me focus a lot on teaching. But I'll spend um, an hour to an hour and a half every morning in my home office before I turn on my phone or do anything post my kind of morning prayer time, just reading. And that's so helpful. And about half of that is tied to upcoming sermon series. And the other half is I'm just reading to learn, just chasing stuff that I'm interested in. Usually I'm reading in one of those three categories of cultural commentary, spiritual formation, or biblical theology, and just try to keep a rotating list of books through all three categories, in addition to reading for upcoming stuff. Then as far as the sermon goes, um, I start a week ahead. This is another thing I stole from Mike per his advice. So I kind of have two days a week where I work on sermon most of the day for about five or six hours each time. It's Wednesday and Thursday for me. And um, one of those days, depending on the week, Wednesday or Thursday, I'll actually be studying not for that coming Sunday, but for the following Sunday. So, and my heart there, and then if, so if I'm teaching exegetically, it's really simple. I just do all the commentary work, all the language work, all the cultural backstory work that Wednesday or whatever. And that gives me 10 days then for it to marinate. Cause I think good preaching is for the most part is about marination. Like how long can it just sit there and play connect the dots and anything I come across reading the news in the morning to a chat or a conversation with a friend to some random thing I see on Instagram or whatever. I have another whole week to add stuff to the pile, think process. If it's something that I've yet to live in my own life, start to work it into my own life, process it emotionally and spiritually. And then, um, so basically one day I just do all my study work. And then the next day I sit down and I write it. 
I'm a manuscript guy. I don't really recommend that. I'm just a total perfectionist. I'm not that great at extemporaneous. I don't just get up and I don't have high woo factor on the, you know, on the strength finders and just yeah. go. I'm not that smart, not that good on my feet. So, and I, and I'm introverted and I don't mind writing. So I start, I do an outline and uh, take a quick break, come back, write up the whole thing, take a quick break, come back, do all my slides and a second draft. And then Thursday afternoon, uh, which is my Friday, I take Friday, Saturday off. Um, I email it out to all of our elders and uh, most of our staff and the head of the theology department at Western Seminary. And uh, they get this because it's manuscript, I can do that. And then they have two days to read it and give me feedback via email, or if it's something more intense, a phone call. And then I'll uh, either Saturday night late or, if possible, Sunday morning early, I go in, pull up all those emails, work through all of their edit suggestions, don't say this, say this, add this, it's missing this, that's heresy, whatever. Mm. And um, and I love that. One, it just makes my teaching way better. Yeah, yeah. Two, I get to use the pronoun we. I get to say we believe, we have this sense, we think. And that's, you know, we is a much more powerful pronoun than I. And it says something about community and me being under authority, not just in authority. And then I'll go teach it. And we have a couple gatherings on Sunday. So normally after the first one, I'll do a debrief with key staff, my spouse, stuff like that. What can we improve upon as the day goes on? And then at that point, you know, by the second or third one, it's kind of too late if it's a hopeless sermon. <laughs> There's not much hope for change. And go do it. And I'll, um, after I, you know, you spend a couple hours Sunday morning editing it to the best of my ability, walk it through in my mind one time if I have time and go do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so if I followed this right, so Wednesday is usually like a week and a half out, and then Thursday is a couple days out. Yeah. So between, so there's like this eight day gap between initial study and then the actual put together of the manuscript. Exactly. So talk talk about that in between. What what is, um, I, I mean, one of the things I firmly believe is that my sermon prep is about, and I'm bivocational, so it has to be this way. But I'm about fifty percent you know, study and reflection. And my home office is the master closet in our apartment. And it's amazing. I, <laughs> I'm sitting in it right now. I have a desk and a reading chair. <laughs> Come on. And it's so quiet. Yeah. But but 50% of, I feel like 50% of my sermon prep is just that and doing the work there. But really, in a lot of ways, the other 50% of my sermon prep is just out and about life and having really reliable systems for capturing the ideas that come to me so that I can put them all together. So I'm always interested in that attentive piece, right? That that piece that happens where ideas are coming. You talked about Instagram or when you're in a conversation. What What's the process look like for grabbing a hold of those and then surfacing them again when it's time to put that manuscript together? Yeah, I mean, there's I don't have some like formula for that because it's so hit or miss, you know what I mean? But Evernote has been a lifesaver and, sure. you know, cause I can have it on my phone, which is with me too much. And so just trying to anytime, you know, I come across an idea, a thought, a link to an article, a quote, just trying to just write it down, throw it in this little file in the file I have that is all my notes and um, just put it in there. Add this, add this, add this, add this, think about this. And I just have this growing kind of list. So when I get down to write it, 
I have stuff, whether it's just stuff from my heart or time with prayer or a random conversation with somebody from our church or an article I read in the paper, it's all sitting there in this word doc, just waiting to be kind of put together into something coherent. So I don't have some like genius way to capture everything. Yeah, I'm yeah. just, you know, trying to learn to pay attention and, and that I, I don't want to make it sound more artistic than it really is. Half the time I'm yeah. just trying to like get through the meetings of the day and raise a family, you know, and right. um, bef- rather than like have this, I mean, the crazy thing about preaching is, and I'm a perfectionist, so it's hard for me, but there's just no way to talk as much as we talk at the level of sophistication and artistry and knowledge that we'd like. You know, the average TED Talk is 18 minutes long and has 250 hours of work put into it. You know, my average sermon is 45 minutes long. And if I have a crazy good week has 15 hours of work put into it, you know? So there's just no way. It's just a different medium, you know? And that's, that's hard for me at times to accept because people expect it to be as good as every TED talk they've ever heard, you know? Um, But it's just the reality of there are other things in life beside the sermon. Uh, Three of them are my children and, you know, Mm -hmm. people and church and leadership and life and exercise and prayer and emotional health and Sabbath. And, you know, so I don't want to make it sound more, you know, maestro than it really is. Sure. Totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think anybody who is listening will be encouraged because here you are and you're you know, your primary job, maybe not primary job, but a significant part of your job and your church's teaching. And there's plenty of people who I've interviewed or even who have asked questions later, you know, followed up and said, man, I, I got so many other pieces that I do alongside my ministry. So knowing that even you feel that way is perhaps that's a significant part of your job, I think is encouraging to all of us. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And and you got to be careful to compare yourself, especially if you're not like a full-time teaching elder or whatever, where you yeah. can take I mean, three days of my week basically go to a sermon if you count Sunday and then two days a week. I mean, there are very few people that can take three days of their week where the main thing they do is work on a 40-minute talk, you know? So, I'm really grateful for that. But even having that, it's nowhere near enough time. I'm never done. It's like, what's the saying? You know, you're never done writing. You're just out of time. I think sermons are the same. You're, You're never done with the sermon. You're just out of time, you know, right. you're never oh, done I with study, <laughs> you're never done with dreaming, praying, you're just out of time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, talk a little bit about the, that 90 minutes or 60 minutes you do of reading every morning, because essentially what you're creating then is this big back catalog, whether it's in your brain or on your bookshelves, whatever it might be. Uh, how do you, how do you start to connect those things that you're reading into specific sermons. You know, if you're not reading for specific sermons, how do those start to arrive in manuscripts? Yeah, well, um, again, I'm still working on that. Uh, memory retention is a weak point for me. And so it's the basic stuff, highlight, take notes at the end. Um, so two things. One is the best results I get is when I'm reading things that are connected to an upcoming sermon series, but a little bit in advance. Yeah. That tends to be the best the best formula I've come up with so far. And then I take notes on each of those books that are connected to an upcoming series or book or talk. And I have them all together in a folder on my computer. So, you know, my next big sermon series, I have the next two weeks off, and then we're doing this big 
series and practice around eating and drinking with people um, far from God. And we're going to do this whole thing around community and the thing around the Lord's Supper. So I'm reading all like theology of food, uh, hospitality, yeah. both, you know, academic stuff on table fellowship and early Christian hospitality down to like missional little primer books on how to eat with neighbors and all that kind of stuff. And um, I'm reading all of it and I won't be teaching it for another month. And I've been reading it for about the last six weeks. And I just, every good book that's remotely connected to it, I get to the end, look back through my highlights, dump all of the best notes, quotes, ideas in. And then when I sit down to write those first sermons, I'm gonna have just pages and pages and pages of notes, ideas, scriptures, quotes, you know, like just yeah, yeah. great, great material. So that's the that's the best solution that I found. The other thing that I've just started doing recently, specifically more for the other stuff that you read that isn't connected to an upcoming series or maybe something you want to talk about in the next two or three years, but it's not on the books yet, is I just started doing, bringing back the Erasmus idea of a common book, you know? Yeah. And I was new to that. I'm not sure if, you know, listeners are familiar with that. You could Google Erasmus common book and just have fun. But he, you know, obviously Greek scholar, trans Bible translator, he started something that was used in academia for several hundred years prior till you know, maybe the 19th or the, 18th, the 20th century of this idea where you'd have a common book and you'd kind of write down different um, ideas, themes, topics. And anytime you came across a new learning, a new quote, a new idea, you'd put it in there. So Evernote has made that easier than ever. So I just use the app Evernote because I can have it on my computer and my iPad pad and my phone. And I just have a growing list of categories, you know, sexuality, Holy Spirit, spiritual formation, you know, whatever, yeah. spirituality. And anytime I come across a good quote, a good article, a good idea, a good whatever, I'm just trying to discipline myself. And it's a pain because it takes time to do this, but just trying to discipline myself to toss it in there. And I see at Evernote is you can even just take pictures of stuff that you're reading and just toss stuff in there so that when I'm sitting down for my next series on whatever, I can think, oh, I have, you know, three pages of random stuff I've collected over the years on, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, and so that's, that's what I'm trying to do to get that other stuff. Otherwise, there's just too many books. You put all this time into reading a book and it's just, man, my memory is so spotty as, try, as far as trying to access the right idea at the right time. It's really hit or miss. So yeah, yeah. that's the other thing I'm trying to do. I remember being uh, talking with John Tyson a number of years ago, th uh, many, many years ago, actually. And it was whenever it was still kind of a new thing and Kindle on iPhone was a new thing. And he was showing me how he just, when he's reading and he sees something he likes, he just takes a screenshot because he was reading books on his iPhone <laughs> yeah, and then, and then tossing the screenshot into Evernote, which could search it. So yep. yeah, you can do so much. Um, all right. Couple, just a couple more, probably more quick questions, but oh, maybe this one won't be quick, but what um, I, I, I've seen that you, you, seems like you cycle a handful of people, you know, through the preaching rotation at your church. Is there, is there intentional training going on at your church? Are those people that are already had training? What's, what's it look like for you for developing other people to preach? Yeah, I mean, it would be, I mean, it would be a mix of guests that I want to come in to deposit something into our church. I have so many great friends that are great leaders and teachers, 
with um, kind of key leaders in our church. So the other kind of co-elder who's with me and um, a lovely pastor named Bethany that kind of anchored that position. Then with young people that were kind of raising up, you know, who are future kind of, or hopefully future preacher, teachers, some of them are church planners, you know. And so there's always somebody or a couple of young people that we're trying to raise up. And some of those wouldn't make it to the podcast. You know, sometimes usually when we're starting people right from the ground up, they'll um, kind of the process is I have about two days worth of homiletics, kind of a little course I put together. I'll sit, you know, every year or two with half a dozen people and kind of take them through this thing. And then, you know, beginning for most people when they're beginning preaching is they'll preach with me and they'll preach my outline and fill in kind of their own stories and notes and stuff like that. And they'll maybe, we have three gatherings. They'll maybe do one of the three gatherings and we'll do that several times where like, they'll teach with me, they'll write the sermon with me, they'll study everything I study, they'll see my whole process, everything behind the scenes. And then they'll basically teach my sermon, but just kind of through their own life and language at one of our three gatherings. And depending on the level, you know, is this a 22-year-old who just graduated? Is this a 32-year-old who's just preaching for the first time but has been leading for years? They might do that once. They might do that 10 times, you know. And then they kind of work up to where they're ready to take a whole Sunday by themselves. And they go that same process. And we're um, extra involved in working on the working up the teaching with them, talking it through. Again, we make everybody has to send everybody has to go through the same process that I go through of writing up at least an in-depth outline and sending it out Thursday for everybody to see, weigh in on, critique, help edit. And so I do that, especially kind of heavy handed with new teachers. And then the goal is they get to the spot where they don't need anything from me, you know? So that's, that's kind of our process. Frankly, it's just hard, you know what I mean? Because it's just, it's really hard. We don't have a good solution. I mean, the 10,000 hours thing, that's a long, 10,000 hours, a long time. And uh, what was that bell quote? uh, Preaching's like learning to play the violin in public. And man, that couldn't be further from, you know, it couldn't be closer to the truth. So it's hard. You know, I had that. I, I kind of had a great gig going on when I was younger. But um, unless if there's like a youth group or something, it's really hard for people to get just time and practice. So we're still trying to figure that out. I don't think our model is great, but that's what we're trying to do to raise yeah. up teachers. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you talking about that. And then um, one other one is what are some what are some resources, books, or other things that you feel like have been really important for you or formative for you in, in how you see preaching? Uh, we can say all of Mark Sayer's books. Can we just say that one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the most formative things for me, um, there's, there's only one homiletical book that I've ever read that I even liked, much less loved, and I loved it. It's called The Homiletical. Let me see. I'm by my bookshelf. I think it's called The Homiletical Plot Yeah, yeah. by Eugene Lowry. Have you read that? Uh, man, long ago, but I'll tell you, it's been mentioned a number of times on here. Yeah, I love it. You know, I came across this later in my preaching, so it kind of put language to what I was already doing and helped help me kind of think about how to try to do it much better than I was. Um, but, you know, the subtitle is The Sermon as Narrative Art Form, and it's this idea, it's just really good. It got me away, helped me get away from kind of what I call term paper preaching, you know, intro story, thesis statement, three points outro, you know, to kind of more like um, how you'd make a movie, kind of telling a story, but with ideas 
rather than characters and dialogue. And um, so I love that. That book has been incredibly helpful. And then honestly, Dallas Willard and some other writers like that, their work around spiritual formation has been incredibly helpful because I didn't get any at a great seminary and all that, but I didn't get any of that in Bible college and seminary. So um, I got Bible and I got theology and I even got a little bit of homiletics, but I didn't get anything about like, this is how people actually change. And if you're trying to teach toward change, toward growth, maturity, transformation, then you need to get past just Bible theology and how do I write a good talk that's fun to listen to and actually get into what is it that changes people and what role does the sermon play in that and how do you how do you sculpt even a, the flow of a teaching to that end you know what I mean so yeah in addition to Sayer's stuff I, w- I would say kind of everything by Willard and um, specifically some of his more accessible stuff like the renovation of the heart has a lot to say it's where he does his whole Vim paradigm, which I've kind of built my whole sermon around that. Vision, attention, means. That's kind of the flow of most of my sermons. He does great stuff about the role of the mind and teaching and thinking well. And I think there's lots of implications for the sermon hmm. in that aspect of spiritual formation. So, yeah, I'd recommend kind of The Homiletical Plot and Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. I quoted Renovation of the Heart, but you're con- this past Sunday, but you're convicting me that I actually just need to go back and read the whole thing again rather than <laughs> pick out some of my highlights. Yes. Well, with Willard books, you kind of need to read them three or four times before you start to figure For out what sure. they're about, unless if you're just much more intelligent than the average person. Most of them are very hard for me. All right. So you, you've talked about Mark Sayers a couple times. Let's talk about your podcast. Can you talk about this cultural moment? Because it's, it's fantastic. So I'm going oh, to so put you nice. on the spot. Oh, that's so kind. Yeah. Well, we've only done one season and we're actually recording season two this Saturday. He's coming into town, uh, which will be a blast. Yeah. It's just, again, I've made friends with Mark. His work was so helpful. And it was the same thing. Like every preacher, I'll sit there, I'll read one of his books or we'll have a beer late or whatever. He'll talk. He comes to our church once a year. And I'll just think to myself, all right, this is so brilliant and so much good information. How in the world do I like get this into my mind and then into my memory to where it can actually start coming out in my teaching, you know? Um, And so honestly, the podcast was selfishly inspired. I just figured, all right, if I do a podcast where I just sit and basically interview Mark and then interpret Mark, because Mark and Willard, who are kind of two massive influences on me, they're both kind of ninja level. And so, and I don't mean that to disparage Mark. Mark is brilliant, but he kind of has to be interpreted. He's, he's so intelligent. Yeah. And, um, and so I just figured, all right, what if I sit there and I just interview him and let him talk and then just pause him as much as I can and try to interpret him to those of us closer to the middle of the bell curve on IQ. So, um, and then maybe that will help me get these ideas into my head and into my memory and hopefully through that into my teaching more. So that's all we did. And again, it's back to the whole kind of deconstructing uh, post-Christian culture rather than deconstructing the church and seeing more fruit there. And we're both in progressive cities and we've seen so Many of our friends, so many churches um, go through the progressive theology transition toward post-Christian. And it's just, we're, we're really sad over it. And so we're just hoping to help people kind of think through culture, think through lens as leaders, as thoughtful people in post-Christian places, whether it's in Austin or Portland or increasingly anywhere with a phone. And, uh, but yeah, basically it's just me interviewing Mark and 
trying to interpret what he's saying. But it's, it's, I mean, you're, you're doing great work with it because it's really thoughtful stuff. And thankfully, you're keeping them short enough that I can mostly digest everything that's said. In each episode. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's so many podcasts out there and most of them yeah. are so long. And it's like, you know, do I, can I commit to this long? So we figured, all right, some people hate how short they are because they're, you know, you don't get time to nuance. But no, that's good. Um, man, if we can keep it to 20 or 25 minutes, then, and just do, so we'll see. There's no grandiose plan that we're just kind of going to do a couple seasons and see how it goes. And if nothing else, uh, it's been really helpful for me. And I've heard it's been helpful for a lot of people, other thinkers as well. And that's really humbling. And it's just a joy to hang out with Mark and try to get some of those ideas out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, John, Mark, if somebody wants to just learn more about what you're up to, some of the books you've written and, you know, the church, what's the, what's the social medias and the websites to keep up with John Mark? Oh, I'm really easy to find uh, John Mark Comer, J-O-H-N-M-A-R-K-C-O-M-E-R website, social media stuff. Our church is bridgetown.church is our website. And uh, it's, you can just go to my website, order our church, and that'll link you to the podcast and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, John Mark. And the podcast that you're referring to is called This Cultural Moment. And we've just done one season and we're about to release the second one in a couple of weeks, God willing. Well, John Mark, like I said, it's, it's a treat to talk to you. Um, You're, you're probably one of the people that I've heard other people say, please get this guy on your podcast as much as anyone else. So wanted to tell you, thank you for that. And I know that others will be excited to, uh, to hear your voice on here. Oh man, that's so humbling way more than, you know, and, uh, like all of us, I'm just up here trying to do my best work and, and figure it out as we follow Jesus together. So thanks for having me on the show. I love talking about this. Yeah, me too. Me too. John Mark, thank you so much. It was, it was as I've said, great, great, great to talk with you. Uh, for the rest of you, thanks for listening. Again, if you find these conversations helpful, I mentioned audibletrial.com slash sermonsmith. Uh, and also, as always, more iTunes reviews, sharing episodes on social media. All of that is helpful. Thanks for helping others find the podcast and for your kind words.